Take our Bibles to open it to Ephesians chapter 5 from verse 3. And today we are studying a, a topic that I believe uh, all of us or most of us would be struggling with and those who are not struggling are deceiving themselves. But they are not struggling with this sin. Uh, sexual sins, of course, you do get different degrees of seriousness of this sin. But uh, again, as Christians, we, we don't want to comfort ourselves and say, at least I'm doing better than the, the guy next to me, or the lady next to me. No, we want to be holy and, and realize that our God sees the heart. Our God sees our, our thoughts, our minds, our secret thoughts are open before him. And therefore, we want to also know what does God say, not just that these things are sin, but how to overcome it. And, and this text gives us a surprising weapon. That's the title of the sermon. We'll see there's a surprising weapon because I don't think many of us think of fighting this sin with this weapon. And I pray that God will set many of us free in our ongoing fight of this sin. But let's read the text together. This is Ephesians 5 verse 3. Hear the words of the Lord. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Let's pray. Father, we ask you for your mercy and your grace. We ask you that you would search our hearts. Lord, I believe that all of us have failed in this area and therefore we need a Savior. We need your grace. But Father, help us not just to always fall and, and always make excuses for our sins, but teach us how to walk in holiness. Teach us how to, to be pure, not just in our external deeds, but even in our hearts, in our secret thoughts. And show us this weapon, and may this weapon that we will see to, tonight and this afternoon be, be freeing for us, Lord. That we will see the heart of sexual sin, but also the heart of purity tonight. By your grace we pray. Amen. Beloved, there's a saying which says that character is who you are when you are alone. When nobody is there, when nobody sees you, that is who you really are. But that doesn't go far enough because the Bible, remember, the Bible is not focused merely upon our external behaviors or our deeds. The Bible goes even to our thoughts, even to our intentions of our hearts. That's how deep the Bible goes. And the Bible says our hearts are open and exposed to the one to whom we must give an account. He sees it. He hears it. He, he knows. And that's exactly what makes our text and really the rest of the Bible's teaching on sexual sin so radically different than other, perhaps other standards of purity, other forms of sexual purity, is that our standard is so, so high, so much higher than what our culture would say is a pure person. It goes deeper, it goes higher. Our world has made sex common, sexual sins acceptable. Now a Christian standard for sexual purity is not that high because Christians are against sex. It's super important to say, right? We believe, right, Genesis chapter 2, God made sex. God made marriage. It is his idea. So it's not as if we want to be pure because we're somehow secretly against it. In fact, there's a whole book in the Bible that celebrates it, right? Song of Solomon. Saul of Solomon is all about how a man and a woman enjoy sex in the covenant relationship of marriage between, and we have to say this, a natural-born man and a natural-born woman. In marriage, it's beautiful, it's holy, it's pure. It's, it's even so important, according to Paul in 1 Corinthians 7, if you don't have sex frequently as married couples, you're sinning. You have to stop praying, right? Get back together, Okay. So, but outside of marriage, in a lustful, addictive, cannot get enough form, it destroys you. It destroys your life. It destroys your family. It destroys your children. It destroys everything. And the text before us comes to us like bitter medicine. It will, it will be bitter because it's going to expose you. It's going to show you the depth of this. 
of your lust, your heart of greed, your heart of covetousness, but it's also going to heal you because it's going to point you to the solution. It's going to point you to Christ, but it's also going to point you to some weapons you can use to fight. So we'll look at two points together. Um, first, the standard of sexual purity, and secondly, the reasons for sexual purity. The standards for sexual purity and the reasons for sexual purity. So first, let's look at the standard. What is this standard of sexual purity according to God? Now, Paul is going to list a series of sins, and he's almost going to move from outward to inward. He first looks at verse 5, of oh, verse 3, sorry. It says, but the first word we see here is sexual immorality must not even be named among you. This is the well-known word uh, that comes from the Greek word porneia, where we get our word pornography from, but don't limit it in your mind just to pornography in the sense, in the ancient world, porneia referred to any sexual sin outside of marriage, any sexual perversion outside of the God-defined union of marriage. It refers to sin like adultery, fornication, homosexuality, bestiality, just to name a few. Pedophilia would be included here as well. Now, already, that's already a high standard, all right? Uh, Christians should already not be guilty even of looking at pornography, even of sex before marriage or, or any kind of sexual relationship or activity, like masturbation, for example, outside of the covenant of marriage. But again, that's just a, the outer layer. Paul goes to the next phase, and he goes deeper in verse 3. Look at it. It says, sexual immorality, and then he says, all impurity. So here's the thing. Sometimes we feel good about ourselves because we just didn't commit the act. Or we haven't watched porn for a while, so we feel like we are pure before God. Now, I just want to say, praise God if you, if you haven't. Praise God, okay? That's not to minimize that. They, I think that is amazing when we can do that, and we should do that. But Paul says that doesn't go deep enough. That doesn't go far enough. You see, if we're living in a pornographic culture that thinks... Some, some forms of explicit content is okay. And so you can bluff yourself. You can think you are pure because you just haven't watched pornography. But your heart is impure. Your thoughts are impure. We should not just lay aside porneia. We should also lay aside all impurity. Sinful thoughts. Sinful lusts. Jesus himself. Remember what he said. Matthew 5 verse 27 says, You have heard it. He was said, You shall not commit adultery. Most people will pat themselves on the back. Thankfully, I haven't cheated on my wife. I was faithful. But I say to you, everyone who looks, who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. See what a high, this is a higher standard than just not doing the deed. This is going to our hearts. It, it goes deep. So we should also say, not just don't watch porn, don't look lustfully at men or women as objects of your pleasure, as objects to be used for you. Matthew 5 verse 8, again, here's the standard. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. You see, it's not the pure in external deeds that are going to see God. It's those who are pure in their hearts. That's the standard. You see, you might even have an external appearance of purity, an external show of godliness while your heart is full of impurities and God sees that our thoughts our attitudes also have to be clean so the Christian doesn't just ask have I done the deed but rather am I pure do I have a pure heart where have my eyes been today so we don't ask how far is too far rather they say how can I keep myself pure in my mind my thoughts my actions but that still doesn't go right to the bottom. Now, like a marger, master surgeon, Paul goes and opens our hearts and goes right to the root of sexual sin. And this might be one of the light bulb moments for you. If you've been struggling with sexual sin, you just never could get victory or walk in obedience. It's because maybe you haven't been chopping at the root. And look at the bottom of a, of a sexually addicted heart. Look at verse 3. All impurity or covetousness covetousness now that see that sin almost seems out of place right we're talking about sexual sins and impurity and suddenly covetousness like that almost feels like it doesn't fit here but indeed this is really 
at the bottom of your sexual sin and at the bottom of your sexual temptations. God is helping us knowing what type of a heart is lusting, what type of a heart is falling into sexual sin. It is the heart that says, I want more. It's a covetous heart, a greedy heart. For the married, this heart looks like this. I want more than my wife. I want more than my husband. For the single, this heart says, God, you haven't given me enough. I want more and I'm going to look for it in places where you have told me not to go. Remember that this is the, comes from the 10th commandment. This is the 10th commandment. Thou shalt not covet. Look at the full. I think we sometimes forget how, how broad this commandment is. Just look at Exodus 20 verse 17. This is what God says. He says, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything. That is your neighbor's. This commandment just cuts, op cuts our hearts open and exposes it to all of us. It shows that the Ten Commandments really isn't just about external deeds. It shows that when Jesus said, do not even look at a woman with lustful intent, he's actually just interpreting it in, in the light of the Tenth Commandment because where does all adultery begin? With a look. Where does all stealing begin? Coveting someone's possessions, coveting someone's things, you see, so it always starts at the heart and then it moves to the deed. But notice that all of these sins, right? Uh, the first one, he says, do not covet your neighbor's house. Can't we live in that house? You know, or, yeah, I wish we were in that neighborhood that, that people, those people are in. Do not covet your neighbor's wife. Wow, look how beautiful his wife is. Wow, she aged well. Why can't my husband be better with the kids than that wife's husband? Right? Why can't my children just be a little bit more obedient? Then look at those children. They, they seem to do everything the parents say. Like, now, I just want to clarify. The sin of coveting doesn't exclude the desire to want to be married or desire to want to live in a nice house, in a nice neighborhood or the desire to want obedient children. All of those things are good, okay? The problem is, coveting focuses on wanting somebody else's house, somebody else's wife, somebody else's obedient children. Do you see that the focus is on the person? It, remember, the second table of the law is, you shall love your neighbor as you love yourself. Coveting is essentially selfish. It's essentially refusing to rejoice with somebody else's blessings, and wanting those blessings for yourself. So it's not wrong to want a nice house or nice possessions or even to be married if you're single. That's good. The problem is when you want somebody else's house, somebody else's wife or husband. And listen, listen to me. This can, this can be extremely liberating to you. Because maybe for a long time, especially if you've been battling with sexual sins, you've been just chopping the branches. Of sexual sin right you're just trying to cut off the fruit but you don't look at the root you don't look at what is at the right at the bottom of your temptation and God says it's coveting it's saying to God you owe me you owe me pleasure you owe me joy I will take this and now Paul and, and Paul shows us the full picture of, of coveting in verse five. Look at what he, he calls verse he calls coveting in verse five something else. He says, For you may be sure of this, everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous. And then he says what a covetous person is. That is what? An idolater. Isn't that so enlightening? When you are coveting, the simple innocent sin of just wanting somebody else's things or, or, or wanting more than you have, God says you have traded him for an idol. You are worshipping other gods. So right at the bottom of sexual sin is idolatry. Not being satisfied with God. Not believing that he is enough for you. God is not sufficient for them. God is not their supreme joy and their delight. In such a way that even if we lose everything, we can say with Paul, to die. If I lose everything on earth, to die is gain. If I only have God, I'm making a profit. 
A covetous heart looks at what he has and says to God, God, you owe me. You owe me. I still deserve more pleasure from you. I'm not happy with this house. I'm not happy with my body. I'm not happy with my wife or my husband. I want more. And that's why the breaking of the 10th commandment is really the breaking of the first commandment, right? What's the first commandment? You shall have no other gods before me. So coveting is to have other gods before him. It's to want something more than God. So test yourself this afternoon. If you say this, if I only had blank, then I would be happy. If I only had this, then I would be satisfied. Then I would be significant. Then I would be secure. That is your functional God. Now again, um, it's often those good things that we say, if I only had this thing, it's often the good gifts of God that we are coveting above what is good for us. As Paul Tripp would say, when a good thing becomes an ultimate thing, it becomes a bad thing. When a good thing becomes an ultimate thing, it becomes a bad thing. And here's just a basic definition of idolatry. And I really like this definition because you can almost test yourself in this. An idol is something you will be willing to sin to get or sin when you don't get it. So something you'd be willing to sin to get it and when it's denied you, you sin. That's an idol. So think of the first part of it. If you're willing to sin to get it, are you willing to take shortcuts? Are you willing to break some of the rules? Are you willing to not be so strict anymore? Because you want this thing so badly, you're willing to manipulate. You're willing to, to bribe or to do whatever. Now think of, this is often the one that we, we see ourselves the most. What happens when it's denied? How do you respond? Impatience? Irritation? Often idols like comfort, right? You know, sometimes even, I don't know, it sounds so strange, like, just like, I just want five minutes to read C.S. Lewis, Chronicles of Narnia, on a, with my hot, my hot chocolate, and, and then my boy runs in and interrupts me, and I just snap at him. I'm, 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 I'm worshipping this good gift that God has given me to such an extreme that I'm sinning when it's denied me. You see, that's a way to test yourself. But on the flip side, if God is your God, you believe that all your interruptions is because God is interrupting your plans. God has, uh, has um, rubbed, or not rubbed, uh, messed up your schedule, right, for your good. And so the heart that knows God is sovereign, God is wise, God is my Father, and He is enough, He rests, this heart rests in God in every circumstance, even in the trials of waiting, perhaps, to be married, even that trial of knowing that, okay, I can't have this thing now, but, but I know my Father is good, I know He has my best interest at heart. A heart that has God as his God is thankful for God, for everything he has done. For God's eternal wrath has been satisfied on the cross, and that's enough. I am going to heaven where there will be eternal joys, eternal pleasures. You see, and this heart that has God as his God can bring their complaints to God. They can say, God, I desire this. Lord, you know my heart. You know the trial. You know my sorrow. But at the end of that prayer rests in God. And say, Father, not my will be done, but yours. Amen. Amen. <laughs> and then there's that contentment. And this is often behind the often abused verse of Philippians 4. Right? This is the context of Philippians 4 verse 11. Paul says, this is the secret. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So this is not a gym verse. Okay, so <laughs> right, this is not to be able to bench press the 500 Ks or whatever. Okay. But it's the context of being content with poverty. When you don't have everything you want, you can say, I can be content in my poverty for I can do all things through Christ and even content with riches. 
You see, when he, he says, I have abundance, I can even then be content. Because isn't it so true? Sometimes you're the most discontent when you have everything you want. Because then you want more. You, you, your, your greedy hand, your greedy heart wants to cling for more. In all circumstances, good and bad, I have learned the secret. What's the secret? It's Christ. Christ. Christ is enough. Christ is my joy. When I die, I have Christ. When I live, I live for Christ. It's Christ from the beginning till the end. And I will have him forevermore. He is enough. So the Christian believes at the end of making his request known to God, perhaps for marriage or perhaps for a house or perhaps for that desired thing, at the end, the heart of the Christian rests and knows that God is good. And you can say, because God works all things and he will not withhold any good thing from you, that even this singleness is working together for my good. Even this current house I'm living in is working together for my good. Even this husband and wife, even this viper in a diaper, even, even all these things that I have and where I am, God is working for my good. But then Paul says something strange. I think we need to pause on verse 3 because he says what we ought to do with these three things. He says in verse 3, Sexual immorality, all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Now, Paul doesn't mean that we are not allowed to talk about it because he just did it. All right. So it cannot mean don't talk about these sins. Don't show the despicable nature of some of these sins. Right. We, we should. We should show the ugliness of this sin. We should show how pathetic really it is to commit sexual sin. That's what Paul did. But rather, what Paul means is, firstly, that you should not be guilty of it. it should not, should, we should be so pure as a church, it, it shouldn't even be named. And that's why if there's sexual sin and there's unrepentant sexual sin, church discipline should, should be happening. But if there's repentance, then we should say it shouldn't, shouldn't even be named amongst because it's forgiven, it's cleansed. We are cleansed from that. But I also believe that what Paul has in mind is verse 4. That's what he also has in mind when he says, let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. So Paul has in mind of talking about sexual sins or showing sexual sins in a way that it's no longer seen as sinful, ugly, wrath-inducing, but common, okay. Now this challenges some of us in our entertaining entertainment habits what we have right so here the idea is we shouldn't even be in a conversation with someone we shouldn't be in extended periods of conversations where sexual sin is seen as nothing where sexual sin isn't seen as a big thing it shouldn't be named among you it shouldn't be we shouldn't talk lightly about these sins as if it is not well one big reason for that is luke 6 verse 45 well if if we talk about it in a light way this is what Jesus says. He says, the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. The evil person out of this evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. Why should our mouths be clean from this? Because what your mouth says betrays your heart. Mark 7 verse 21. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, porneia, theft, murder, adultery. So it's not a demon of lust. Right? You, sometimes you will hear people say, I'm struggling with the sin because I, I think I have a demon of lust. What does Jesus say? Where does lust come from? Where does sexual sin come from? From your own heart. It comes from you. It comes from that greedy, covetous, I'm not happy with what I have kind of heart. I need more. And so if you have people that just cannot stop talking about the topic, that just cannot stop bringing up this topic as if it's nothing in light, guess what the heart is full of, right? That, that just reflects their heart. And that's why I think Paul says this shouldn't be among us, also because it has a corrupting effect on us. If, if we have conversations that are filled with these kind of topics in a light and a superficial manner, it's going to corrupt us. It's going to lead us and tempt us to sin. And I think it's part of that uh, Ephesians 4 verse 29, just page back there when it says, let no corrupting talk. That's what this is. If there's light joking and, and just jest about this, it's corrupting us. Okay, so that shouldn't, that they shouldn't, we should feel shame. We should feel, we should cringe 
at sexual sin. That's, that's the proper Christian response against sexual sins. It's not a joking matter. We should feel shame about it. And beloved, here's a side note, and I think, I think this is a valid application of this text. If we are not even to be entertained by sexual speech, how much more are we not to be entertained by sexual sins on a screen in a perhaps Netflix or movie series in which it is full of? I, I think this is a standard we should be holding up to. Because if even our speech can have a corrupting effect on us, how much more can what we see, especially if it's glorifying sexual sin? But someone might say, oh, but I, don't, I don't agree with that. I don't agree with what I'm looking at at the screen. I'm just enjoying the storyline. I'm just enjoying the show. Beloved, you don't know your heart. You don't know the, the deceptiveness of your heart. What you feed your eyes will feed your desires, will feed your appetites. You should only have eyes for one, your spouse. Is, I love the Greek word for the, uh, the qualification of an elder or a pastor. He says he must be a one-woman man. Literally in the Greek, he must be a one-woman man. Eyes for one woman. That's, that's, that's purity there. So if you think you do, this doesn't affect you, I, I think you should just evaluate your life. And see if, it's, if it really is leading you to, to sin. Now some of you might be just listening to me and might feel the weight of your sin. You know you've been guilty, perhaps even in the external forms of that. And all of us are guilty of the internal forms of this. But let me give you good news. If you are guilty of sexual sins, here's the good news. Sexual sins are not the unforgivable sin. It's not. Jesus died for prostitutes. And it was often the prostitutes that found in him grace for their sins. All of it. They found in Christ a Savior willing to forgive them of all their sins. Christ saved people. And when people saw Christ... Christ saved the kind of people that we would have said, that person doesn't have redemption. That person is too far. It's too far gone. So through Christ, even us who have failed miserably in this area, if you just come to Christ, if you lay your sins at the cross, you can be washed clean. His blood is bigger than your sins. So leave your sin behind. Leave your lust. Leave the things that are fueling your lust even, right? Some, sometimes not even just the things, not, not sinful in and of itself, but it always triggers us. It always brings us back to that sinful place, right? Jesus, cut out your head. Repent of, repent of those things. Make your life uncomfortable. Imagine having one eye and one hand, right? You're not going to be comfortable, but that's the point. It's better to be uncomfortable here than to be eternally uncomfortable in hell. So repent, but then come and rest in Christ. Not just for the forgiveness of your sins, but for the satisfaction of your heart. He satisfies. There's that beautiful imagery in Jeremiah too that says, idolatry is like empty cisterns. The more you put in, the more it leaks. The more it leaks. It just never holds water. But Christ is the fountain of living waters. You can always come and just drink and drink and it will always be enough and you will always want more. So that's the first. That's the standard of sexual purity. It's high. And that's the level we are to fight it on, not even in our gaze. We should fight this sin. But now, let's look at the reasons. The reasons. The reasons for sexual purity. And this is what I love about the Bible. I love this about God. Is he really tells us just to do something without giving us very, very great reasons or promises that we are to believe that frees us from the lies of our sexual sin or our, our temptations. Now, let me give you three reasons to fight. Three reasons we see in this text why we are to say no to sexual immorality and impurity and covetousness. The first one, because of who you are. Say no to sexual sin because of who you are. And that, we see that in verse 3 already. Look at verse 3. It says, 
These sins must not even be named among you, as is proper among whom? The saints. What does that mean? You are holy. You are clean. You are forgiven. Right? You are. You belong to God. Why would you do that sin if you are a saint? It doesn't make sense. That's not who you are, Christian. Don't, don't live like your old self. Look at verse 8, the same point in verse 8. It says, For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Notice not you were in darkness. What does it say? You were darkness. And not just you are walking in the light. You are the light. You are new. You're a new creation. I think it was one brother who told me, uh, I think it was Charles Spurgeon who said this, there's a sense where this sin should be below us. We're not going to descend that low. That's not who we are. It's too, it's too low for us to do. Because we are clean. We are forgiven. Now be what you are. Become what you are. Fight. That is your identity in Christ. Secondly, second reason is because of something better. So not just because of who you are, but because of something better. I think that also right at the bottom of our sin, of this sin, is that is the belief that this is as good as it gets. Right? But here is the surprising weapon against us. The better. Are you ready? Verse 4. It says, instead of this filthiness, this foolish talk, this crude joking, instead, let there be... Thanksgiving. That's a weapon against sexual sin. Thanksgiving is the opposite of a covetous heart. Thanksgiving is the opposite of a greedy heart. What does covetous, covetousness focuses on everything you do not have? And therefore, you cannot be thankful. You cannot say thank you because you are always focusing on that which you do not have. While Thanksgiving is the opposite. What is Thanksgiving? Focusing on everything you do have and saying to God, thank you for this. You are so overwhelmed by who God is and what he has given you that there's no space in your heart for greed, for covetousness, which by the way is the heart that fuels your sexual sins. You see, that's, that's going at the root. So remember the put off is stop, stop the sexual sin, but the put on is fill your mind and your heart with God and His promises, His blessings. Don't just put off greed. Replace it with gratitude. Don't just put off covetousness. Replace it with contentment. That's the secret weapon. And this is our key mistake of the sin. We just focus on what we are not to do. Don't do that. Don't do that. Don't do that. Don't do that. Replace it not with just don't do that. But the Lord, thank you. Some of you might be sitting here and say, but I don't have anything to say thank you for. <laughs> okay, well, that just shows how long ago you did it. Okay? If, 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 you don't, if you're not a person of thanksgiving, it shows that you don't know, you don't understand. Look at verse 18 to 20. We're going to study this text in, de in detail, but look at this verse. It says, do not get drunk with wine, that is the debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, Giving thanks, how often? Always, and for what? For everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Thessalonians 5, 18 says the same thing, right? It says, give thanks in all circumstances. This is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. That's God's will, to be thankful always, and for everything, and that's why the beginning says, "Be filled with the Spirit." This is not natural. Naturally, we grow. Naturally, we grumble. Naturally, we're never content. But by walking by the Spirit, being filled with the Spirit, we can give thanks always. So, let me flesh this out for you a bit to try to help you with this. Of course, first thank God for your physical life, for your physical life. That's a great gift God has given you. You know the air you're breathing right now. You don't deserve that. And that's given to you daily. 
just daily supplicate, just daily supplying our very breath, the sunshine, our breath, our life, a thousand physical pleasures we enjoy, all comes from God. I love this quote from Jeremiah Burroughs in a, a, a very great book, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. It's a book everybody should read, but listen to this quote. He says, a discontented heart is troubled because he has no more comfort, but a self-denying man rather wonders that he has as much as he has. Oh, says the one, I have but a little. Yes, is the man who has learned this lesson of self-denial, but I rather wonder that God bestows on me the liberty of breathing in the air. Knowing how vile I am, and knowing how much sin the Lord sees in me. Do you see? When you really see how sinful you are and what you deserve, even just breathing is something that you don't understand. Lord, how could I just be breathing like this? You know that perfectly seared, jimmy sourced, baptized steak sizzling on a, <laughs> on, a, on, a, on a grill? And we think that's normal. We think that's like average. <laughs> It's not. And we don't give thanks for that. We don't, when we taste that and say, God, thank you, this tastes so amazing. Have you slept in a warm bed last night? Have you had breakfast? Thank God. You see, just on, just on the physical level, if you just stay there, your heart will be so overwhelmed by just the physical blessings God's given you. The, the heart of pornography, the heart of sexual sin will just die. But think now, let's, let's widen the circle. Thank God also for your relationships. Perhaps you have a, a great mother, a great father, a best friend, your spouse, someone you can just laugh out loud with, right? I'm sure all of you have someone like that. Now, thank God for that. Thank God for that person. Thank God for the relationships in church, your church family. God has given us one another. God has given us friendships. Even if your earthly family has forsaken you, you will have a hundred homes right here in your church family. We would never be poor in that sense, right? We will always have a home. Have you thanked God for your church family? If you are married, your spouse, to thank God for your spouse is a weapon against sexual sin. That's the counsel of Proverbs 5. Proverbs 5 says, why would you go to a stranger when you have a fountain at your home? Right? Thank God for your wife. So husbands, if you think of your wife, think of her smile. Think of her personality. Think of her love. Think even of her body, which God has given to you to enjoy. Thank God for that. Thank God for her. Ladies or wives, thank God for your husband. Thank God for his work, his dedication, his support, what you admire about your husband. Learn to thank God for your husband. Thank God for what he does well. And even if you might not have some of those relationships just mentioned, thank God for your relationship with himself. The greatest gift. Remember, marriage is a shadow. Remember, marriage is, isn't even the, 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 the real thing. Christ himself is. Thank God for chapter 5, verse 1. Look at chapter 5, verse 1. It says, be imitators of God as beloved children. You are beloved. You have been adopted. God loves you passionately. He delights in you. He disciplines the son in whom he loves. What about verse 2? And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. When's the last time you just thank God for that cross, the place you were supposed to hang, you were supposed to suffer the wrath of God forever and instead... He crushes his own son for you. Thank God. And Christ gave himself willingly. And because he gave his life willingly, he will never change his mind about you. You are secure. There's no divorce in, Christ, in our marriage with Christ. It's never going to happen. And if you really shall go back to chapter 1, verse 3, right? Remember this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. And then just read. Bless, thank God that he has chosen you before the foundation of the world. Thank God that you've been predestined for adoption. Thank God for redeeming you, forgiving you, giving you an inheritance, sealing you with the Holy Spirit. You see, but we don't do that. We, we tend to focus on our problems. We tend to focus on everything we don't have, that our hearts are empty and therefore ripe for sexual sins. 
It's empty of thanksgiving. So there's room for the devil and for our temptation, our sin to fill. Finally, Christian, thank God for your future. What a glorious future we have. What is your future, Christian? No pain, no suffering, no crying, no sickness, no separation, no death, forevermore. And remember, as, as that famous quote says, our lives on earth is the cover page of our books. Eternity is chapter one, where each chapter is better than the one before. That's what's waiting for us, an eternity of joy. So, beloved, so Christian, look up, look up. Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him. Look up. Thank Him for that day of redemption in chapter 4, verse 30. We have been sealed of the Spirit for the day of redemption. It's going to come a day when your body will be redeemed. You won't suffer. Thank God for that. That is our secret weapon. Are you using it? Are you using the weapon of thanksgiving? Are you replacing the heart of greed with the heart of gratitude for everything you have? And that's how you kill it. So let me close with the last reason. This is a surprising reason because of the consequences. If you do not kill the sin, there's consequences. Look at verses 5 to 6. <clears throat> for you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Now, what he said here is not hard to understand. Paul just says this. If you don't put your sexual sins to death, you are going to hell. That's what he says. That's what the text says. Right? If you do not kill your sin, your sin will kill you eternally. Look, look at verse 5 carefully. Carefully again. It says, For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is this. Doesn't matter if you're the pastor, the deacon, church member. Doesn't matter who you are. Everyone who is like this has no inheritance in the kingdom of God and Christ. That's a warning. Paul is, God is warning us, and that should make you scared. It's supposed to have a scaring effect upon you. This should make you pause before you press on the button or click the mouse. Is it worth, is it worth to be separated from Christ for all of eternity? And this is a lie. Isn't this so true? This is a common lie the devil will use to lead us into the sin. But God will forgive you. Right? God is gracious. God is a compassionate God. So it's okay. Go. It's okay. You can sin because there's going to be grace at the other side. Now try to picture this in your mind. It's like taking medicine that heals you, that can cure your sin and can cure you, and then mixing it with poison and then thinking it's still going to heal you. That's what that is. To, to take grace as an excuse for sin is the poison that's going to drag you to hell. So when the devil uses that lie, think of that, remember that. This is poison. This is not how Christians think. This is how unbelievers think. And therefore, kill the sin. Kill the sin desperately and radically. Now, of course, Christians fall in the sin. I'm not trying to suggest that we never fall, we never struggle with this. And Christians fall. Think of David and Bathsheba. Think of Solomon. Oh, he's, he's a very good example. But right, what those men repented. Those men cut off their hands and they repented. They came to cry. They came to forgiveness. So there's forgiveness for repentance. But if you use that as an excuse, that just betrays a heart that doesn't love God. That just betrays a heart that doesn't love Him. Now, a logical question for us when we read this is, but does this then mean you can lose your salvation? That's almost the implication we hear or we feel. Is it then possible for a true child of God who has been saved, but then yet doesn't put the sin to death, then to go to hell? Because that's almost the implication if we just read it like this. Now, in Scripture, there's a tension here. There's a tension. The same book, Ephesians, says Christians have been sealed with the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of their inheritance until the day until they acquire it. 
So we're sealed. We cannot lose it. We, when you're saved, you're saved. And God ensures that you make it. Right? That's what the Bible teaches. And the same book says, if you are sexually immoral, you're going to hell. If you don't cut off your hand or pluck out your eye, you are going to hell. So how do you reconcile these, these, twin, these verses, these concepts? Well, before I try to help you see that, uh, the, the reconciliation, I just want to increase the tension a little bit because it, this is not just Paul's teaching. This is the Bible's teaching that if you don't kill your sin, you are going to hell. Listen to Jesus in that same passage in Matthew 5, verse 29. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. You see, it's the same, the same threat, the same warning. If you don't put your sin to death, you will be cast into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Matthew 7, <clears throat> verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you what? Workers of lawlessness. In other words, you lived as if there was no law to obey. You lived as if you were the only law. You lived, you pretended I was your Lord and your Savior, but you were your Lord. You were your Savior. You were the, your own God. I never knew you. 1 Corinthians 6 verse 9. Paul says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. You see, this, this can, you can be deceived like this to think that you can live like this and still go to heaven. No, it says don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. One more, Hebrews 12 verse 14. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. If you are not holy and you are not pursuing holiness, you will not see the Lord. So this isn't, this isn't, this isn't just an Ephesians text that we asked. That this is the Bible's teaching. If you don't kill your sin. Do you see how clear the Bible is? Now, how do we reconcile these truths? Well, simply like this. It's a logical way to, to reconcile them. If none of God's children can be lost on the one side, and if only those who have plucked out their eyes and cut off their hands will go to heaven, and if you put those two things together, it follows that every single born-again Christian will cut off their hands and pluck out their eyes without exception. That's what you will do if you are saved. That's one of the evidences that you are saved, that you don't treat the sin as if, oh, I'm saved, so I don't, have to, I don't have to fight anymore. That just proves that you are not saved. That just proves that you are a goat dressed as a sheep. Or as people say, I can commit this adultery. I can divorce my wife because I'm a Christian. I'm saved. I cannot lose that salvation, so it's okay. No, it's not. Because if you're a true Christian, you will cut off that hand. You will pluck out that eye. And, and I think one text shows it to us clearly. 1 John 3. This text, I feel, reconciles these two truths. Listen to this. It says, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So John helps us here. He says, listen, you cannot keep on. Yes, you're going to fall multiple times, probably for the rest of your life, going to battle with the sin. It's never, the battle never stops, but it's always a battle. You see the difference there? Where for an unbeliever, that's just who I am. I'm just embracing this as my identity. And that's why the text says, look again at the text. Verse 5, you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral, you see the difference between committing sexual sins and being a sexually immoral person. There's a difference there. The one characterizes your life. The other one is a bloody fight to the death. And you might fail multiple times, but you stand up and you cut off and you pluck out and you... You, you ask for help. You ask for counseling. You come. You bring the sin into the open. 
But that's how these two things work. So the warning is real. The warning, you should not read this and say, oh, but I'm saved, so this doesn't apply to me. No, it does apply to us. Because it's still true. If you don't kill your sin, you are going to hell. And that's why we should be aware of verse 6. When verse 6 says, let no one deceive you with empty words. What would be empty words? Don't worry. God is gracious. You can do this sin. It's okay. You can live in your sexual immorality. God's always going to forgive you. You can go. Enjoy. No, those are empty words. That's twisting the Bible to fit our sin. Empty words are an excuse to do our sin. That's empty words. Don't listen to that. Because of 6 verse B that says, because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. So beloved, fear God. Fear Him. See, that's a, another weapon you can use. Fear Him. Fear the consequences of your sin. Fear being separated from Him for all of eternity. Kill your sin quickly. Kill it at the root. Don't just focus on the fruit or the branches. Go to the root. Fight it with thanksgiving. Fight it with Scripture. Fight it with the Holy Spirit. Fight it with fellowship. And that's how you put to death these sins. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we, we come to you, Lord, as broken people. And Lord, you know the depths of our hearts. You know that well, we fight this sin not just on the external level, but even on our thoughts and our desires. Lord, thank you for helping us and teaching us, Lord, that at the bottom of a sexually immoral sin is a covetous heart. Father, help us to see the lies and the emptiness of covetousness. Help us to not focus on what we don't have, but to focus on what we do have and to then fight with thanksgiving and giving you thanks for all the things you have done. Thank you for cleansing us and saving us and changing us. And Lord, please help us now to fight. It's all of your children, those who are truly saved, who will fight. And so, Lord, help us to do that. Fill us with your strength. Fill us with your spirit. And help us to put this into death. That we might be that pure, holy bride in your eyes. We pray this for your name's sake. Amen.